1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer, worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. A book of 40 letters by 40 prominent Canadians will mark the 40th anniversary of Terry Fox's groundbreaking Marathon of Hope. I talked about his legacy with his younger brother, Daryl Fox. And... A wide-ranging conversation with the Dean of the University of Toronto's newly launched Pandemic Institute. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Andrew Lloyd Webber is making it known he'll do anything to save live theater. The 72-year-old is taking part in a COVID-19 vaccine trial at Oxford University. Like many entertainers, he wants live theater, which has been hard hit by the pandemic, to return soon. The Tony winner has remained a staunch critic of theater closures across England, saying the extended blackout threatens their very survival the pandemic comes some good health news. Health authorities have declared Africa free of polio after no cases have been reported in four years. Polio once paralyzed some 75,000 children a year across Africa. This week's declaration leaves Pakistan and neighboring Afghanistan as the only countries thought to still have the wild polio virus. If you're an athlete, you may gain greater immunity from a flu shot or potentially a COVID-19 vaccine than people who are less active. Two complementary and timely new studies of exercise and vaccinations suggest that intense training amplifies our vaccine response. These studies focused on elite runners, swimmers, wrestlers and cyclists which most of us are not. But the researchers believe that even more casual recreational athletes are likely to mount better vaccine responses than sedentary people. That's how the British patriotic song Rule Britannia will be played next month at the BBC Prom's annual Summer Music Festival – instrumental only. The BBC says the move is in response to COVID-19 safety protocols to keep musicians apart. But many believe it was prompted by a debate over whether the lyrics glorify colonialism and slavery. The decision is drawing outrage from traditionalists, including Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who says it's time to stop being embarrassed about history. Another honor for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's been named this year's recipient of the National Constitution Center's Liberty Medal. The center says the ceremony will be the pinnacle of its year-long effort to mark the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which granted American women the right to vote in 1920. Here in Canada, women's suffrage occurred at different times in different jurisdictions, starting in the prairies in 1916. Women in Quebec did not receive full suffrage until 1940. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Next week, a new book will mark the 40th anniversary of Terry Fox's iconic Marathon of Hope with 40 Letters, from 40 contributors ranging from Margaret Atwood to Bobby Orr. Terry's younger brother, Daryl Fox, edited Forever Terry, a legacy in letters, and I reached him in Vancouver.
2: To see that Terry's story is still relevant and still inspiring people, it's it's just incredible. And obviously, we've had to curtail our our celebration and and plans this year in light of uh, COVID-19. But uh, You know, Terry Foxers are are very driven people. We're looking forward to uh, a very successful uh, and different Terry Fox run in September.
1: To what do you attribute the power of his image, his legacy, still to inspire people?
2: You know, one of the things that I most admire about Terry Fox was the the person that started on April 12, 1980, the Marathon of Hope, was the same person who was forced to stop on September 1st, Despite all the attention, the profile, the fame and fortune that was offered to him, he remained grounded. He remained little old Terry Fox from small town, BC. He knew what, why he was running across the Canada. He said that he would never forget those that he had left behind in the cancer ward, and that was his focus.
1: Do you think he had a sense that he wouldn't make it?
2: I think in, in reflecting Libby, I, I think so. You know, I, I for one thought he was invincible. You know, I again, being there for, for 90 plus days, um, it seemed that you know, no matter how tired and fatigued or injured he was, he got up the next morning and started, and started to run. Um, but when I, re- when we remember back on, you know, the last few weeks and, and, you know, what I remember was very clear for Terry was the fact that he wanted to get home. You know, he was, he was calculating every, not only every mile, but every foot that he had ran. So his focus was was uh, reaching uh, the Pacific Ocean, and yet we were still over 2,000 miles away. So, you know, I, again, looking back, I, I should have sensed that something wasn't quite right. I mean, Terry, when he was diagnosed the second time with cancer, he had, you know, two uh, tumors, one the size of a, a lemon in one lung and one the size of a golf ball and the other, and yet he was able to run 26 miles the day before. So, you know, he was, he was incredible in terms of his, his grit and determination and never give up attitude. But again, I, I I should have realized that uh, something wasn't quite right in, in the weeks preceding September 1st.
1: What gave you the idea or the foundation, the idea to get this book together with essays from prominent people about what Terry means to them?
2: It was, uh, James McCreif, who, um who is a, a former Terry Fox Run organizer in in Calgary, who presented the idea to the to the family um, last last summer, and uh, immediately we responded very positively to the concept. We thought it would be a great way to to celebrate the 40th anniversary. You were able to 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 read words of, about Terry from from people from a variety, obviously different backgrounds, and. We, we were we're hanging on every word, and uh, I'm not going to pick a favorite because I don't have one. But I mean, I, I I'm just going to say this, just because I I was and you know I was quite, I, it was a, surpri- a bit of a surprise to re- to read about. Um, I had no knowledge of this. I don't have no memory that uh, Wayne Gretzky and fellow teammates Mark Messier, Lee Foglin, um, and Kevin Lowe um, played wheelchair basketball against Team Canada. Um, and this was in the fall of 1979, and Team Canada consisted of Terry Fox and, and Rick Hansen and others, and the the final score was 44 to four for Team Canada. Okay, so, and, and typical, like you know, I, if you know Terry Fox, you know that he was a, a competitor. He was very.
1: Competitive. He didn't tell you about that. <laughs> no,
2: he didn't. Well, I, or maybe I, I, I. I Neglected to remember. I can't believe I didn't remember it, but uh, he he actually put a a whipping on Wayne and teammates that I'm sure he enjoyed every minute of it.
1: (laughs) Do you have a a sense of what you think priorities should be in cancer research at the moment?
2: I think what's important for us is we we follow Terry's vision. Terry was diagnosed with osteosarcoma bone cancer. Um, He could have ran across the country raising money. Or osteosarcoma, but he had a bigger vision than that and he wanted to reach out to to fund, to fund and support all forms of the disease, of which, as you would know, there's over 200. So, for us, it's always been about, and this was Terry's wish and request, is that we we fund scientific excellence and we focus on team. Just like Terry brought a nation together in 1980, that's that's what we do. In terms of the research community, we like Research to form research teams, and uh, and that, that continues to be our focus. Our program, Terry Fox Program Project Grant competition, is is, is world renowned, um, internet internationally peer reviewed every every year. That's a very important project, and we recently launched with the or will be launching with the support of the federal government the Marathon of Hope Cancer Center Network.
1: Yes, I know um, I know all about that. Yes.
2: Yeah. So. We're very excited by that. That's, a, that's going to be another challenge for us because it, it, it is a match. You know, the federal government is prepared to contribute 150 million over five years, but we, and this is where we're working together with our partners across the country, we, the Terry Fox Foundation, along with others, needs to raise 150 million dollars. So, but we like a challenge and we're looking forward to to making that happen.
1: Anything else uh, you, you want to leave people with uh, as uh, we get ready to, you know, as we continue to mark the 40th anniversary?
2: Please, uh, please uh, join us. Please come out. Join us. I say join us because you, you will be, though it's virtually on September 20th. There's information on TerryFox.org about uh, that event.
1: Daryl Fox, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Well, my pleasure. Thank you, Libby.
1: Okay. Bye bye. That was Daryl Fox on the 40th anniversary of his brother Terry's Marathon of Hope. You can read more about it in the September-October issue of Zoomer Magazine. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review launched Institute for Pandemics at the University of Toronto has a very ambitious mandate to help the world prepare better and recover faster from crises like the coronavirus. I reached the dean, Staney Brown. First of all, congratulations and why do we need an institute for pandemics?
3: Uh, when public health is moving along well when there are not pandemics. Uh, you don't really see anything uh, and it's really hard to maintain that capacity. Uh, but we need to have that capacity always ready because, uh, you know, as we work through this pandemic, we need to respond as well as we can and as strong as we can in, in line with the science. But we also want to be as ready as possible for when the next one arrives.
1: Well, we apparently were on the road to being ready after SARS, but after a few years, it fell off the list of priorities. Governments didn't want to fund it.
3: It always does. Uh, and this is part of the challenge, right? If we think about all the pressures that we always have on all of our different sort of public services, uh, if things seem to be moving along well, you tend to focus on the things that aren't. Uh, and so, what we're hoping is by building this at a university, that we can maintain that capacity.
1: What are the things that you're going to be studying in this institute? Sure.
3: The first, really, that we're studying is, is this readiness question. And that's a matter of looking at new diseases as they're emerging, uh, understanding how uh, current infectious diseases are sort of changing, uh, and constantly modeling that forward so we understand what the likely sort of spread is, but also what the likely risk is to Canada, which I think is a a critical issue that we have this sort of Canadian perspective on what's going on.
1: You talk about measuring the threat to Canada. I'm remembering the beginning of this pandemic, and I remember I started covering it at... In January in China, and our own chief public officer of health said the the risk here is very low. We were very slow to recognize this. Sure.
3: Well, I don't think we understood the full way that this would spread and how quickly it would spread. Uh, it was a new disease, and we're still trying to figure it out. But having that capacity to talk about what might happen, to do that modeling, I think is a really critical thing. And the more that we have that, and the more that we um, have that out publicly, the better prepared we will be.
1: Is part of it just a natural tendency of people to think, hey, it can't happen here?
3: Yeah, very much. And, you know, you think, you know, we we've made it through SARS, uh, and, you know, there was a lot of costs and tragedies out of SARS. Uh, but then we've made it through pretty well a series of other diseases that look like they're pandemic, and you, you start to lose your vigilance.
1: Are you confident that there will be a vaccine?
3: No, I'm not. I'm hopeful, and I think there's lots of good reasons to be hopeful, but I'm not confident.
1: Are you confident that there will be one or several good treatments?
3: We're starting to get better treatments. And so the emerging evidence on not emerging, but the very strong evidence that we've seen on things like dexamethasone uh, can reduce mortality. It can reduce dependence on uh, on ventilators, Uh, but there's not a silver bullet yet.
1: Will you be working on a vaccine or on treatments at the Institute?
3: We won't be working on vaccines. Uh, We will be studying different treatments, and there's a number of clinical trials in Toronto right now looking at, you know, a whole bunch of drugs that are relatively cheap and relatively easy to uh, get a hold of. I'm hopeful that we'll see results out of those shortly.
1: What about the use of ventilators? Is that something you're examining?
3: Something we will be examining? Uh, I think right now the focus for almost everyone has been how to make sure that we have enough ventilators. Uh, no one wants to be in that sort of situation that you saw uh, in New York City or that you saw in um, Italy. northern Italy where the health system was just overwhelmed, right? And there was a lot of very hard decisions that had to be made. I, I guess the other thing that you know, people tend not to think about is there's the whole recovery from the pandemic issue as well, right? Yep. Uh, and we've got... Um, Obviously issues about the social determinants of health. Uh we've got real challenges around uh you know the equity uh of the pandemic It has had an incredibly inequitable effect on poor uh and on racialized communities. That's gonna echo for a long time.
1: One of the things I notice is that it's really singled out if you're older and the threshold for older seems to be dropping. I've heard public figures referring to people, you know, around 60 years old as elderly and death statistics are expressed as 60 and over. Is that anything that you are interested in?
3: So the question of whether or not the disease has a much greater uh, health impact on older people is, is very clear it does. The issue of how the ethics of all that plays out uh, is something that people at the Institute are looking at. We've got you know, a very, very strong Center for Bioethics that will be tackling these sorts of questions.
1: If you look at the death statistics, there are people who are very aged But the way they're expressed sort of encompasses the, uh, you know, young, older people who maybe weren't dying in droves, but are are suddenly seen as being very vulnerable.
3: So if you're asking me, does the risk of death increase with age? The answer to that is yes. If you're asking me about whether or not we should be reporting uh, deaths at sort of 60 and over, I'd say no, I think we need to look at rates really in a much finer and more granular way because we don't want to be looking at you know death rates over 80 and somehow lumping them in with over 70, over 60, over 50. Uh, I think the finer look really is important.
1: What can you do about that? Do you make a recommendation or what?
3: So what we'd be doing is, you know, as much as possible, reporting things with as fine a grain as we can and making as much data available as we can. And, and hopefully making it in a way that uh, it's accessible to almost anyone who has an interest in this, right? And, you know, for instance, we saw that um, agencies were kind of grouping things or, you know, uh, official reporting groups were grouping things in a way that we thought was inappropriate. We would, we would make an argument to make it more fun.
1: What about a second wave?
3: So well, I think a lot of people like to think about the second wave as a function of what month of the year it is, right? The biggest driver of whether or not we face a second wave is the degree to which we have some adherence to the public health measures that help really break the first wave. Uh, And so if you look around the world, um, places where they've not been able to maintain some physical distancing, uh, places where they've not been able to maintain um, uh, those public health measures that really break the transmission uh, is where they've seen the second waves.
1: So it is avoidable.
3: Uh, it sure is controllable. I won't say it's entirely avoidable, but it sure is controllable.
1: Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye. That was Dr. Staney Brown, Dean of the New Pandemic Institute at the University of Toronto's Dalla Lana School of Public Health. As to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Nimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer.